time to welcome my guest to chat around the headlines. Good morning, Enzio. Good morning, Stephen. Enzio von Fahl is a capital preservation specialist at Financial Shield. And good morning, Martin. Good morning, Stephen. A pleasure to be back. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you again. Martin Henneker is Head of Asia Investment Advisory at St. James Place Wealth Management. And good to see your faces in our Admiralty studio. So let's kick off with news that came in just before we went on air last night, sorry, last night, yesterday morning, um, that Fitch had downgraded the US credit rating to AA+. They've now said this decision was influenced by concerns over fiscal stability, governance issues and political polarisation, partly stemming from the January 6 insurrection. Repeated last-minute debt ceiling negotiations also factored into this decision. Do you think this downgrade is justified, Martin? Well, actually, what surprises me is that it took 12 years for the second rating agency to follow into SMP. Uh, uh, footsteps um, because the fiscal situation has clearly been deteriorating and I was actually planning to come on today and say um, even though nobody seems to care or talk about this that issue it doesn't mean it's gone away and fortunately we have Fitch now uh, making this a bit of a, a more of a hot topic so what I would just like to quote here very briefly is in the first nine months of the US fiscal year the deficit is 1.39 trillion a lot higher than last year it was for the whole year 1.4 trillion it used to be 1 trillion and at 1 trillion level pre-COVID already a lot of economies warned how that was going to potentially feed inflationary pressure um, uh, down the road. So I think um, of this 1.39 trillion, uh, the interest payment, and that's the, the figure I would suggest to watch in particular, uh, the amount of interest the U.S. government had to pay in those nine months was $652 billion, and that's only rising given all these interest rates increases we have seen. So what's the key here? And I think pretty much 99% of the market is missing it. You have the rise mm. in inflation. As a result of the rising inflation, the higher interest costs driving budget deficits up. And then budget deficits in turn could... Uh, further fuel inflation, actually. And if people don't believe that, there was actually a good report called Inflation as a Fiscal Limit published in August uh, last year by the Federal Reserve of Chicago. And I just quote one sentence from this, and it says here, trend inflation is fully controlled by the monetary authority only when public debt can be successfully stabilized. And it's sort of um, also implying that it might not be, um, and, and which is exactly what Fitch warned about. Now, practically speaking, though, is there risk that the U.S. default, and what does it really mean? Ultimately, since they can print their own money, I think medium to long term, what it really means for investors is that the inflationary risk, potential inflationary rebound, is a risk that shouldn't be underestimated. I think you make a good point there that there isn't a lot of talk about the enormous and getting larger U.S. debt. Why do you think we don't talk about that more, Enzio? Well, because the it's it's not sensationalist anymore. The um, next to what Martin was saying, the deficit to GDP ratios go is going to be rising by seventy percent this year, from three point seven percent of GDP last year to six point three percent this year. And as Martin totally correctly points out, the interest payments, thanks to our inflation Fed policy, they're going to be about a trillion dollars this year. So, um, but these aren't sensational. This is kind of arcane stuff for the normal listener and normal newspaper reader. So you put that in, in comparison to Trump's indictment mm. um, and the, the sales of Barbie tickets um, and Oppenheimer tickets in the, in the movie houses, and you come up with a pretty dreary story. 
Yeah, well, I think we need to take a note of talking more about it. And uh, Martin, I'd love to get the details of that report you were referring to. Maybe we can post it on our, our LinkedIn site for our listeners. And, and you make a good point, Martin, that the last downgrade was in 2011, I believe, with S&P. Do you think other agencies are going to follow and, and downgrade or do you think it's just going to stop at Fitch now? I can say that. What's interesting, since you mentioned the 2011 day now, as well as Trump certainly wasn't around, so blaming it all on the political side of mm. things uh, might not be, you know, getting to to uh, the bottom uh, of it. Whether or not, I mean, I think basically investors shouldn't wait for rating agencies uh, to yeah. guide them on where the risks lie. But if, if anybody is interested to get a little closer and see for themselves what the figures are looking like and do basic mass on projection of debt, the Congressional Budget Office always publish, publishes a lot of good updates. And when you uh, dig down into the figures there and projections there, they don't look particularly sustainable. I think you make a good point there. Rather than rely on other people, take a look at the figures yourself and make your own decision. Uh, let's move on now to AI, because there was a fall in price of AI-related shares yesterday, including AMD, which despite coming out with what could be perceived as positive news, fell by 6%. Do you think the boom in AI stocks is sustainable or will end in tears? Enzio. I think it's going to end in tears. I think this reminds me of the tech bubble. Um, John Bogle would say that you just have to be beware, beware of the madness of crowds. <laughs> and as my mother-in-law always taught me, when the interest rates are low, the wrong people get rich. So all of that's been happening now. And I don't think that these sky-high valuations, which I'm not an expert on, are are not sustainable just because it's it's raced the AI stuff has raced way way ahead of itself and of course then what we saw in China yesterday with the yet more regulations on yeah. on the, the 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 internet exposure which is not AI it's kind of a dumb um, then um, I think that you'll find that these text shares may start getting a bit toppy. I love that phrase, a dumb. I've made a note of it to use. Uh, what do you have to add to that, Martin? Well, Stephen, I've done this job for about 23 years now. And I must say, like, the one biggest mistake that I see investors and people in the industry often make generally is what is what is referred to as recency bias, yeah. which means that, you know, whatever happened recently and whatever is big in the news, people like to invest in it or follow it, etc., etc. And then they neglect looking at the price of things, they neglect looking at other things that might be depressed. Just like last year, we had a lot of people saying, why on earth would you invest in Japan? It hasn't done anything for ages, but then valuations were really, really compelling. Um, now it might be other areas like everybody loves to hate uh, China still. I mean, people are more open now to um, Japan, more positive, uh, but there's still other areas that everybody agrees to hate. And when that's the case, um, you might just want, not want to exclude that from the universe of screening for good opportunities. It makes you realise how human psychology is so important when it comes to finance and investment. Is it, exactly. is it covered enough, do you think, in finance modules where people are studying to be financial experts like yourselves? Yeah, I mean, you've got, basic, you've got a lot of books and classics, The Madness of Crowds, on 
um, on mass market, on mass behavior, and then on mass market behavior. So it is covered, but as my teacher von Hayek taught me, you can't stick everything into a mathematical model and then expect it to come out, to churn something out. That's why I call it not absolutely incompetent AI, but absolutely dumb, which means that many people just take these numbers, sh shove them in, and then shove out and see what happens. So I think it, it needs to be factored into the modeling more. It's, it's factored into the learning at business schools, but not into the modeling. Okay. Let's move on to China now, as fascinating that is, and got lots of quotes mm. here that I'm going to be putting on our LinkedIn site later, and the reference for that book, The Madness of Crowds. But moving on to China, one of the reasons often cited for the slowdown is the private sector has lost confidence due to various clampdowns. How much of that is due to common prosperity? Well, it's drive for common prosperity. And can common prosperity and capitalism work together? Enzio. I think they can. Again, I'm obviously biased because of von Hayek, but I think that the the current problem in China is not just to move on a little bit. It's because it, common prosperity creates jobs. This, the private sector in China creates 90% of the jobs, 80% of the investment, roughly. And so if you thwart that private sector, then, of course, and get it make it insecure, people not having confidence in the policy direction, then they're not going to invest and that's not going to create jobs. Surprise, surprise, youth unemployment up 20%, etc., at 20% at plus. Um, now, that's not the only reason for youth unemployment being so high, but even in other sectors of the economy, the employment rates are moving up, I believe, even if they're not reported. So I think that what the Beijing needs to decide whether it wants to continue following this more ideological line of it that it's currently having, or whether it wants the common prosperity with the capitalism, which is exactly what Deng Xiaoping proved when he took over to get rich as glorious. Well, just before I move on to you, Martin, there was news, well, late last night, that um, cell phones in China mm. are going to be regulated for use by under-18s. And it's the providers that will need to manage that. And that sent tech firms down yesterday. Yes. Now, that, that's an example, really, of a, yes. a, a regulation that's knocking the confidence of the private sector. Yeah, that's yet another... So when, when the government in China quite correct, he says that they want to encourage the private sector. What they're really treating the private sector as is a bit of a pawn on a chessboard. It, do what I say and then I'll allow you to do it. Otherwise, do what I say and I won't allow you to do it either. And so quite how this speakeasy, this prohibition of, of eight-year-olds spending only eight minutes on the iPhone, how's that going to work in practice? Yeah. Anything to add, Enzio? No, not for me. Thank you. Okay. Let's move on to the Japan now. Now, the Bank of Japan eased controls on its government bond market on Friday, altering a cornerstone of its ultra-loose monetary policy. Is this just going to be a one-off, or is it a sign things are going to start tightening up, NZO? I don't think it's going to tighten up for a long time. I used to cover Japan for many years, and I just find that the whilst it has decided to actually loosen monetary policy by selling more bonds into the system, which drive up the bond yields to 1%, that's double what they currently are, the official allowable rates, I believe that the Bank of Japan wants a 2% target, which it says it will reach next year, 
I don't think so, because I think that high inflation is here to stay. There's a, there are many, and listeners know that there are many structural supply-side issues of inflation that are involved in this, particularly also the weak yen, which is, of course, also going to drive up imported inflation. But So I don't think that this is the beginning of the end. The beginning of the end will be when they decide to jack up the short-term, the overnight rates, from minus minus 0.1% at present and jack them up. That could happen over the next two or three years. Of course, if you say it long enough, as we all know, it will happen. So I'll blare on about this, blather on about this next time. <laughs> all become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes. Uh, Martin. Yes, uh, sure. So on Japan, one interesting thing is you had the Tokyo CPI, ex-food, ex-energy at 4% in July. And yet there's no move on the interest rate. Why? Maybe the Japan policymakers are a little bit more clever than in the Fed and they know that if they raise rates to anywhere close to where inflation is now, there's going to be a sovereign debt crisis. So they're just as stuck as the US. Again, you have this inflationary risk. Ultimately, though, it might support tangible assets. Uh, in Japan, maybe you see it more clearly and it might be leading other areas. Uh, stocks have actually been benefiting from the rising, rising inflationary concerns as people have been sitting on cash and now they're getting nervous about the negative real interest rates. Um, so I think opportunities in Japan stocks, China stocks are looking both very good now. Because I just wanted to move on to that quickly because we've only got about 45 seconds left. The Japanese equity market is up 27% year to date. Uh, do you see that continuing the rest of the year? And how do you compare it to China? For example, the Sh Shanghai Composite has only gone up 5%. Does this open up some better investment opportunities in China? And Martin, you have less than 30 seconds. Valuation-wise, right now, China is certainly one of the most undervalued markets. There are lots of risks, like you discussed earlier. Um, but overall, I think there's op the opportunities uh, are certainly there as part of a diversified portfolio. You mentioned Shanghai. I would, I would note Shanghai versus Hong Kong. Hong Kong-listed China yeah. trucks stayed at a 30% discount versus Shanghai. So something not to be overlooked there. Absolutely, in our own home territory. So thank you both to Enzio von Feil, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Martin Henniker, Head of Asia Investment Advisory at St. James Place Wealth Management.